We all need nurturance and care. There's nothing gendered about that. There's nothing female about connection and care and nurturance. It's human. Anyone with a mammalian brain has those needs, whether they're in touch with them or not. And so how do we open up more space for all of us to reconnect and heal around that? This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and this week we are talking with two of the contributing authors of Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. This book is amazing and is officially our second book club selection for the Healing Justice Podcast Book Club. So for those who just read Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good by Adrienne Marie Brown with us, we had so much fun these past three months reading together, sharing a discussion guide, having book club members find each other locally, um, and organize local reading groups and discussion groups, and also join us on a virtual hangout uh, just a week or two ago with Adrian, Amita Swadin, and Monique Tula, who are contributors to that book, to have an incredible discussion. So if you'd like to join Book Club and follow along to our deep dive with this book, Turn This World Inside Out, uh, for this quarter, go ahead and sign up with us at patreon.com slash healingjustice. And even if you don't have the funds to become a sustainer of the podcast right now to sign up and get those additional perks of being part of Book Club, you are still here with us right now. And you can still buy the book from AK Press, which is a movement publisher who we adore, by going to their website at akpress.org and using the discount code PODCAST to get the book at 15% off. So you can listen to this episode, you can read the book with us, um, and we are just so glad you're here to dive into this conversation with us. A couple things you can expect in this conversation. We talk about attachment styles, what are secure and insecure attachments, what do they have to do with shame or guilt, what gives us ground to have accountable relationships, what is nurturance culture, and how does it open up the possibility of having healthy and grounded and accountable relationships. We also talk about things like gaslighting, and we talk about the gendering of these concepts, and especially Serena helps us complexify the way that gender interplays with power and with, um, with nurturance, right? So really excited that you're here and want to share just a little bit about the two guests that are joining us. So Nava Smolash, who uses the pen name Nora Samaran to write this book, is a white settler from a working class immigrant background. She was a member of the No One is Illegal Vancouver Collective from 05 to 08 and the Media Democracy Day Vancouver Collective from 08 to 2010. Her essay, The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture, went viral in February 2016 and has grown into this book, which just came out this past June. Nava teaches at Douglas College in Coast Salish Territories, which is also known as Vancouver, British Columbia. Serena is our second guest today and also our second Canadian ever on the show. And Serena Lucas Bandar is a Punjabi, Welsh, and Irish trans femme writer and workshop facilitator living as a settler on Lekwungen and Wasanak lands. She currently splits her time between providing inclusive sexuality education to middle schoolers, supporting survivors of sexualized violence with the Anti-Violence Project, and mentoring trans, two-spirit, and non-binary youth through the Trans Tipping Point Project. Serena says she is a Virgo sun and intentionally ignores the rest of her chart and also loves to swim. So I had so much fun talking to these two. We're so glad you're here to dive into the conversation with us. You can follow along using the book, Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. And let's dive in. Here we go. So, hey, Serena. Hi, Nava. I'm so happy that y'all are here with us. Thanks for being here. Hey, Kate. Hi, Thanks hi. for having us. Um, 
Would you take a moment to introduce yourselves, just your name and where you live and your pronouns so that folks can recognize your voices? Hi, I'm Nava. I use she, her pronouns. I am from Jochake in Kanyukahaga territory, also known as Montreal. And I'm speaking to you today from Vancouver, which is in Coast Salish territories, the unceded traditional and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Scohopmish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, and I'm really happy to be on the podcast with you. And hey, I'm Serena. I use she, her pronouns as well, and I'm talking to you from Victoria, British Columbia, on the territories of the Lokongan and Wasanich peoples. Thank you. Um, we were just remarking earlier, or I was remarking how excited I am to be. I, you're the first, I think, Canadians on this show. Um, we really are focused mostly on uh, U.S. organizing, and I'm just really excited to be amongst people who have a nice, uh, nice, thorough, nasally <laughs> A sound in their voices. <laughs> I'm, I'm usually isolated in that regard um, in these conversations. So super grateful that you're here. This book, Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture, is gorgeous in all the ways. I mean, and... It's been so much fun over the past kind of month that we've started talking to read it segment by segment. For those who have been in our book club around pleasure activism or who've read pleasure activism, this book is, it feels a little bit similar in terms of ingesting it because we get to read from different voices. There's dialogues, there's writing, and it's just been an awesome exploration for me to learn, and I'm excited to sit here and get to talk to you about it. And um. I know that this all really sprung out of an essay that you wrote, Nava, under your pen name, Nora Samaran, called The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture. And so would you give us a little bit of the backstory of like what was that essay about and what was it like also for that conversation to sort of blow up and lead to this moment? Yeah, sure. Um, that's always a, a fun story. It was a hellish time in my life um, and it somehow managed to turn into the all of these beautiful conversations that have happened since that have made me really happy. Um, I am a survivor of gendered violence, um, both when I was a kid and then again in the year or two before this piece. Um, and also compounded with some other forms of developmental harm that I guess were hanging around in my nervous system and I got out of those situations and was like, woohoo, I'm out. And you think you get out and then it stops, but it hangs around in your body and it waits to like catch up with you later. Um, and I had just gotten my first really secure job in my life. And within a year, my body was like, ha ha ha, you have financial security now, we're going to break. <laughs> um, and I stopped being able to read, which my job is, I teach at a community college in Vancouver. So I wasn't able to do my job and I went on medical leave and I couldn't read for about a year. And while I was trying to learn how to read again and write again, I was started experimenting on a blog and I made up a fake name that was like scrambling my name a little bit just so that no one I knew would see it originally, <laughs> which didn't work. Cause now then when I wrote it, it went all over the place and has now grown into this project. And from the beginning, it's really been something about just listening to myself really deeply because you know, I went to grad school and you have to write a certain way and perform a certain kind of knowing. And I was like, fuck that shit. I'm out of here. But also I want to be in a community where people are doing political and intellectual work. And I'd been a community organizer on and off while I was in school and just trying to like figure out what my own voice was that was grounded in all those relationships. Yeah. And would you tell us a little bit about like, what is the premise of that essay for those who haven't read it? And also Serena, feel free to hop in if, if you read it or have a take on it as well. It was just the gist of it was that this culture valorizes certain kinds of um, ways of experiencing the world and invalidates others. And I had finally understood that that's a cultural overlay on top of a physiological experience. So we have different attachment styles based on the arbitrary things that were happening to us when we were kids, when we were very, very little. Um, this is a more, I guess it's a more complex field, but this is an oversimplification. If your caregivers were really attuned, letting you go when you needed to go, letting you come back when you needed to come back, responding to your needs when you were like too little to make your own decisions, you know, a tiny, tiny baby or under three, then you developed a secure attachment style. You, you trust other people and you're more willing to be open. 
And if they were unable to because they were experiencing trauma or they had not had that kind of care or it was disrupted in some way through systemic stuff or personal stuff, then you might develop what the attachment theory calls one of the insecure styles, which are anxious and avoidant or disorganized. Um, these aren't necessarily fixed styles. We change in relationship with others. It, it's always in a moving dance. So we can express more of this in some relationships and others in others. It's not like a personality trait so much as a tendency. But you may have a tendency towards an, an anxious attachment style, which means you always feel the desire for more closeness with people you're intimate with, and you always are conscious of you might lose the relationship and we're doing things to stay close. Or you might um, have a more avoidant attachment style, which the attachment theorists say breaks down into anxious avoidant and dismissive avoidant. And again, there are many different systems for describing these, but this is the one that I used because it's from the book Hold Me Tight by Sue Johnson, and that was one of the first ones that I read. And she says that... Um, Preoccupied avoidant wants connection, but doesn't want to ask for it. Doesn't want to say because it's too vulnerable to ask. So they'll sulk or like start fights and or just pull away and hope that the person who's close to them notices and comes towards them. And then dismissive avoidant has not had their needs met from so early that they shame a part of themselves that does healthy connection so thoroughly that they put it away and don't know that it's there and don't think that connection is okay Little things like needing to be held tenderly and looked at like you matter, looked at with care, looked at with love, needing to be witnessed, needing to be seen, mirrored, because we all need that to belong. We have this gift in our nervous systems that gives us this capacity to connect with one another really profoundly. Um, and this culture has overlaid on top of that a whole bunch of cultural meanings that valorize an avoidant style and shame an anxious style. And I was trying to turn that inside out. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. That's making a lot of sense to me around it's, and we'll talk more about this, but like the gender framing in the book, because when you talk about valorizing and shaming, it's like a very kind of mainstream masculine valorizing of like not needing, right? Like not needing connection. And then uh, more like visibly interested in connection more like mainstream understanding of a feminine style, like with the anxious piece. Does that feel right? I mean, I'm like hella identifying with this anxious okay. attacher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, please let me feel you. I care about you. Ah. Mm. And in somatics, we talk about it as like towards and away. Exactly. Right? Like a towards tendency and an away tendency. And it comes up for conflict as well. Uh, do we turn towards or do we turn away? And mm. community organizing for me like building fabric where we can really belong and rely on one another so we can resist. For me, that's also a turn towards, turn away question. And ecologically connecting, aware of the, what's happening to the earth, do we turn towards or do we turn away? Our bodies belong. Our bodies have always been part of one another and the earth. Uh -huh. They're not separate mm -hmm. at all. They never have been. Totally. Like I, when you describe anxious and avoidance again, and it's both of them honestly resonate with me. Like I think... I think it's it's very easy to like, you know, separate them down gender lines of the binary of saying, yes, I'm anxious is, you know, more culturally uh, similar to how we treat women and how we expect women and effeminate people to be. And I guess the avoidance style is more towards a, a masculine kind of ide ideal. Um, and at the same time, I think, you know, I think there's like much more variation than mm -hmm. that. And I'm, I mean, we're over some mm -hmm. line here. Um, I think about, you know, a lot of like the misogynistic stereotypes about women who are more avoidant or mm -hmm. are more detached, I would say. You know, we've got all the, the standard ones about being an ice queen or being, you know, bossy. Um, I think there's different ways that we can, you know, describe these relationships we have with our genders. Yeah, I agree. Depending on the style. I agree. Yeah. And I want to actually, it's helpful to clarify because um, mm -hmm. I very particularly was not trying to say that men are avoiding and women are anxious. And a lot of people kind of read it that way. And I'm like, really? Is that, oh, I didn't, that wasn't what I was thinking. Um, the research says that these are just in our nervous systems. When we're little kids, all of us, whatever our gender can experience these styles and that there's a tiny, tiny little bit of like maybe more masculine identified folks are socialized into more avoidant styles because we shame men for connecting. So there may be a little bit there, but that wasn't really what I was saying. I was saying that the interplay between the cultural and the embodied 
is what's so fascinating to me, that men are not inherently more avoidant or inherently more disconnected, but that where that combination happens along those lines, which was my experience, like, I need a lot of closeness when I'm in a relationship. I need a lot of reassurance. And I have a trauma history, and so I have a disorganized attachment style, which is the kind that's like all of the others. <laughs> I have I've been um, as avoidant as I am anxious and I needed to learn to be a better sister turn towards my own family members who I love the most in the world and I've been working on that even as with people that are typically more masculine identified and mostly cis dudes that I've been attracted to and in relationships with I need them to be really secure with me or else all my old trauma shit comes up and I had been shaming myself brutally for that so fully that I was fragmenting off those parts of myself that needed what I now understand are healthy, normal things. And so I wanted to notice just that when it happens to fall along lines where the more masculine identified person or the person who this culture has given more masculine privilege, regardless of their internal identification or their social identification, when that person happens to fall in the more avoidant style and the person who's feminized um, the culture around those people will add on shit tons of complicated shaming that are not based in our biology, that are not based in what we actually need and what's actually healthy for us. And I was just trying to push mm. back at that and be like, no, it's not just that there's these crazy women who are anxious and these like strong men who are avoidant. <laughs> it's actually just that we all need nurturance and care. There's nothing gendered about that. There's nothing female about connection and care and nurturance. It's human. Anyone with a mammalian brain has those needs, whether they're in touch with them or not. And so how do we open up more space for all of us to reconnect and heal around that? Exactly. Yeah, I just, I love the way you put that. I've learned a lot um, from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've learned a lot from you too. So drawing from, you know, what I'd learned and what I'd meditated on in the original essay, Nav and I crafted a chapter where I explored more of the nuance around gender, especially around attachment theory. Um, and we wanted to delve in just a bit more deeply into what does it mean to have a relationship with your gender that can be complicated and that can be almost like its own attachment style in a way. Um, you know, how do we attach ourselves to our gender, our gender identity, our gender expression, and how do we permit, you know, room for such a wide variation of gender expression, regardless of our gender identity? How do we permit room for, you know, men to be feminine and to have those traits that are associated with femininity. How do we permit that as a tool for, you know, again, that liberation of all genders? But the fact that trans women can't be read as masculine or else, or just can't can't exist in this world, you know, it has spillover effect towards cis men who are feminine. You know, there's different ways that, you know, these violences interplay with other genders. I mean, that's something we tried to, you know, investigate a bit more in the chapter. And also, you know, offer some really positive reframings of how can we connect with one another on a gender level. Like, I was, you know, referencing some situations in my own life where before I had come out as transgender or even really realized I was transgender, I was still subconsciously searching for those people in my life who could be models or mirrors of what I could possibly hope to become. Um, I once went on a, you know, a really wonderful camping retreat with some friends from the local pride group in Victoria. This was, yeah, again, long before I'd realized I was transgender. And um, I connected really strongly with a trans woman there who I'd met and who I'm still really close friends with. I didn't know why I like, just was so drawn to her at that time. And I just thought, oh, you know, she's just a really rad person. And yes, she's an amazing person. And um, at the same time, like I was so drawn to her because I was seeing positive representations of what I could be in this world. Um, those mirrorings, those ways of attaching ourselves to our gender that aren't shamed and aren't maligned, you know, I think that like that's an argument for, you know, positive representation in the media. But I think at the same time, it's also just a good argument for having the ability to connect positively with other people in our life who maybe we don't share identities with, or maybe we do share identities and we just don't realize it yet. I feel like that, that, you know, that trend just followed me of just being like, oh, hey, here's a trans woman who I've just become friends with. Let's spend all my time with her because she seems so awesome. Um, I wonder why I think she's so awesome. Yeah, Serena, I was really struck by hearing the way that you talk about 
shame, which is one of kind of the core concepts of this book in relation to gender and then also race. Um, thinking about like, well, we're having this conversation because it's deeply important at an at a interpersonal level and a personal level of like our own development and understanding our interactions with other people and how society has shaped patterns that map onto what those interpersonal interactions look like. But also the reverse is true. Like there are um, things playing out at scale in really scary ways, xenophobia, trans misogyny, increasingly empowered violence, right? That um, are sort of mappings at scale of what some of these attachment styles look like or of what kind of shame versus nurturance looks like. And I'm wondering if there's anything more you would say, either kind of theoretical like that or just from your own life as a trans woman of color, like um, as it relates to, you know, what does this interpersonal conversation have to do with what's happening at scale? Yeah, I mean, I can think about in my own life, like, again, like, this was a couple of years ago, I uh, went to a party that was hosted by a friend. And, you know, this is post me coming out and really coming into my own with my gender. And at this party with this friend who is um, not a trans woman and is transgender themselves, but is uh, assigned female at birth. And mm. they, um, their partner, who I believe is a cisgender man, we were playing around with, I think we were play, playing around with Play-Doh of all things. Cause it was just, I don't know. It was just, you know, 20 somethings at a party, you know, you, you play with all the different stuff you did as a kid, you know, you do coloring books and you, I don't know, <laughs> you get drunk and play with Play-Doh anyways. And he made a Play-Doh um, model of what something that he said was a pervert. And basically the Play-Doh model was a, person with visible breasts and a visible like bulge in mm -hmm. their genital mm -hmm. area and I was like mm -hmm. why is that a pervert mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what where where is this going mm -hmm. what what the mm -hmm. fuck um yeah I just like left that party I like I checked in with my friend and they didn't really kind of understand what was going on and I was like you know what, this is like a very small thing and I'm not gonna hold on to it, but at the same time, I'm not gonna have this these people in my life right now. Mm -hmm. Like this is like, I'm leaving the party. I just, you know, I just took some time away from that friend. And then it wasn't until uh, about six months ago that I had to end up reconnecting with this mm -hmm. friend on a work matter. And we ended up having coffee and just sitting down and, you know, had a, like a much more in-depth conversation about just accountability around like, you know, cause it was still a really hurtful thing. But at the same time, the same kind of shame that I felt when I was young around seeing trans women in the media portrayed negatively didn't exist in the same situation, you know, with this Play-Doh figurine. Um, mm. Because I had those positive connections in my life where I could be like, no, this is not all that we can be. This is not mm. all that we are just some confused man's misunderstanding of bodies mm -hmm. and sexual, I don't know, even perversion. Like, I hate that word. Um, it feels so sex shaming. Yeah. And sex negative. Um, anyways, all that to say that I think having these positive connections in our lives with people who are different from us, who people who have different gender identities than us is so, so important so that we can, you know, not fall into the traps of having these, you know, very harmful ideas about gender and about certain, you know, especially marginalized gender identities. Yeah. And I think having that, those positive connections in our lives and those communities that are radiant in their own gender diversity is so important, again, for being able to really authentically connect with each other. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Thanks for that story. It's so it yeah. makes me it makes my body feel like uh like I'm curling up in my chest in this gross like horrible feeling and for me that definitely like I want to pick up on what you were talking about around when cultural conditioning or cultural norms like this culture has inherited we've inherited so much violence and we're now in a in a moment in like a peak moment you know, it's always been here. It's part of the foundation of Western culture. Western culture is founded on massive violences and 
now we're in a peak moment where they're both being resisted and pushed back on and also they're like they're like uh escalating um mm -hmm. massively mm -hmm. um in ways that makes them visible again so they're not able to be hidden which in some ways is helpful because before they were at least where we live they were like there's we're supposed to be polite in canada and not talk about it right but it's here it's happening so mm -hmm. like um and it's it's in the thick of it right because we're not like outside and trying to like make other people better we're in the thick of it all of us right and so the question is what do we do with that and how do we like continually it's like excavating and pulling out of ourselves both ways where we've been targeted by systemic violence and been shamed and so like Serena that story you know is such an evocative moment and you're working through then the response and being like you know that's just that one person's fucked up idea and it isn't all that I am or all that we can be is so beautiful because for me that's all the work it's like so for me, shaming is understood in an attachment sense. The way I've been learning about it is when we aren't mirrored in a true way, in an accurate way that can deeply see us. And when that happens to us developmentally, which of course, if you're like a, you know, a woman of color living in a white supremacist world, you're going to be mirrored in completely inaccurate ways. Or if you're, you know, for me as a, as a woman living in a world that took away a lot of power from me as a child and as someone who grew up poor often and working class and was like in sporadic experiences of poverty you know the entire universe was projecting back at me massive amounts of shame for my very existence um and going back further like you know one generation ago my dad is a holocaust survivor so like in your like here i'm experiencing whiteness mm -hmm. and white I'm, I'm part of this white supremacist project my father's childhood was like basically hunted like rats for their race in Europe in a totally completely different context. Mm -hmm. And my body kind of carries both of those complicated mm -hmm. physiological experiences <laughs> of mm -hmm. awareness of what it feels like to be rendered subhuman. Mm -hmm. So intimately to think through taking all the things that I've been shamed over as in my life, shamed for, you know, for growing up poor, for having clothes that were torn or dirty or whatever. And then, um, and then shamed around needing comfort or connection, which are intimate experiences for me. To take that, I don't want to stop there. I don't want to be like, oh, these are my experiences, so poor me. I want to take that and exactly what you were saying, Serena, reach across and be like, I know that my existence as like now a cis white woman who now I have a PhD and I'm middle class now and I have a good job, like my existence silences and erases and can do the same things to others that have been, that intimately were done to me when I was younger. And so for me to take that experience of shaming and use it to grow empathy, use it to grow solidarity mm. um, is really vital. Because for me, when we're not mirrored, when we're not really understood, when we're not really known, as little people, we internalize that as us being wrong. Like you can't, mm. as a little kid, go, oh, you know, um, that's a system of oppression. That's not me. <laughs> like four-year-olds don't know how to do that. Three-year-olds, six-month-olds don't know when I, when I turn to the world to be known and instead it reflects back this distorted mirror. Little kids just put that inside themselves and put that part of themselves away. And in this time, we need all of our whole selves to be here, to be in the picture so that we can push back and transform the world. And a big part of the reason why I think is scale. Like you were asking Kate about scale, mm -hmm. that like in order to fight back, like, I don't know about you guys, but my heart has been, and my capacity to resist and organize has been more broken by conflicts mm. that broke us internally in organizing communities yes. than they have been even by the massive hellish scale of the shit we're facing. Right, because yes. I know that I can fight back hard if all of these people that I'm close to will have my back. And I don't mean that in a theoretical sense, but in a physical sense. And I've seen it work so often. Like I'm from, you know, I was connected to organizing communities in, um, in small town Ontario and then in Vancouver and a little bit in Montreal, though not much. Um, and I've seen people do, you know, diehard jail support and really show the fuck up and like sit outside all night because they know someone might get released at a random time and they have to be there because their shoes will have been taken away or like they won't have had water in 24, 48, 60 hours, whatever, right? Or, you know, f hold for people that are, have been imprisoned here. But like I see it. And then I also see when we break each other and when we hurt each other and when we stop being mm. able to work across um, mm. harms that occur and we just break down and then that has pushed me out of capacity to organize 
and I need us to have each other. I need us to be able to hold each other. So for me, deeper work to see one another and turning towards one another, like Gottman talks about turn towards, not away. But in psychology, they think about that a lot in like a family or a couple, you know, that staying connected means turn towards, not away, even when your instinct is to turn away. And for me, it's always been really intuitive because of my family's experiences coming through like as refugees and the war and whatever. And, you know, my, I was raised by people who grew up in shtetls in Eastern Europe where there wasn't anywhere to go, like really small communities. And I guess they brought that to North America with them. And I kind of grew up stewing in it because I grew up in a clan family where you kind of can't walk away. You can't even think about it. So for me, I was shocked at how easily people are like, oh, something went wrong. We're just going to stop talking for 10 years. (laughs) And I'm like, why is that better? Why would you rather that than working it out? it it really strikes me like the way that you really posit cancel culture and throwing people away in the book and like how do we do there's very rigorous ideas and methodologies around accountability here i mean even just for a transparency moment like even us collaborating around featuring this book in our book club like we are drafting up and agreeing to a circle process together that would address potential harm, right? Like there are rigorous accountability practices here mm-hmm. and also a rigorous commitment to not throwing people away. And it it makes me think about your work, Serena, at the Anti-Violence Project uh, with the Sexual Assault Center, like one of the most extreme and explicit and direct and definable causes of harm is like is sexual assault. And yeah, like direct safety issues related to that kind of harm. And I'm curious, how do you think about holding both like rigorous accountability and uh, and continuing to include the possibility for the restoration of the perpetrator to community? Like, h- how do you balance that? Yeah, like it's it's an incredibly tricky balancing act, I would say. And our primary role is to support people who've experienced harm and, you know, people who've experienced, you know, sexualized violence or other forms of violence um, or to support other folks who are supporting survivors because, you know, you can get secondary impacts from mm. just supporting, you know, friends or family in your life who've experienced sexualized violence or other forms of violence. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and this is something that we're working on, you know, trying to continue offering is that we also want to be doing this work with people who have caused harm. So again, like perpetrators, folks who, you know, may have assaulted or just even just crossed boundaries or done something that wasn't entirely consensual. And folks who are like, have done that and are willing to, you know, engage in accountability processes and talk about like, you know, these harms that have happened and how to move on from them and how to do better. Um, And I think it's, it's really important to think about the fact that like, folks who cause harm have often also experienced harm in their own lives. And I don't say that to excuse folks who have caused harm, but to explain that often when we experience trauma, that trauma then plays out in our own bodies and then is, you know, transferred out into the world. There's not just this binary of, you know, perpetrators and survivors. There is such, you know, an interplay between folks who have survived violence and folks who commit violence or, who cross boundaries because they have been, you know, again, their attachment styles are not permitting them to be more than what they could be. Um, Plato situation, like I haven't talked to my friend's partner, but when I did talk to my friend, you know, we had like a really good conversation about just how I really felt. And this, uh, this was like, you know, a year and a half since that situation, this conversation happened. And they had like gotten to a place where they actually really understood like the harm that had happened. And, you know, in the moment of that, you know, that harm happening, they hadn't understood why I was so upset about it. But a year and a half later, they were, you know, much more in a place. And time does play like a really important role in coming to terms with violence that has occurred, whether or not you are the person who's caused it or a person who's experienced it. And Hmm. yeah, coming back to you again, to the work of the Sexual Assault Center, we really can't just leave out people who cause harm out of the equation and out of places to find support. Because if we are removing those people from our community, that is just even more violence. And it's like that, what's the law of thermodynamics? Like, this is just me being a, like a science nerd. It's like every, uh, an, equal. an opposite reaction. Like you can't just introduce that violence 
of removing someone from a community and then to not have it go anywhere. Like that violence, you know, continues to perpetuate and circle around. Also, if I can add on that, after I wrote the essay, something that folks have challenged me on and that's become clearer to me has also been that this idea that hurt people hurt people can also stigmatize survivors and that it's also really true that folks who have experienced harm are just as likely to become really, really deeply dedicated to not perpetuating harm against others. And that, you know, being a survivor of various kinds of harm doesn't mean you're more likely to hurt other people, sometimes quite the opposite. And while it can be part of the picture, there's this whole other part of the picture that a huge part of the book speaks to, which is that conditioning into entitlement and the um, numbing of empathy that comes along with that conditioning into entitlement, whether that's in whiteness or um, masculinity or, you know, well, being wealthy or being like a cishet person, that that conditioning into um, normalized entitlement or normalized supremacy can is also one of the big causes of perpetuating harm against others where we might not even realize we're doing it because the conditioning like kind of stops us from even really understanding the impacts. And I think also about the betrayal of bystanding and how we can learn how to reduce that because the harm itself has one effect, but when we deeply need to feel held by our community, by, we need to belong. And when people watch harm happen, you know, and that's in so many ways, that can be the interpersonal kind. It can be sexual assault, which is, of course, the most visible or the when we talk about it the most, even though it's very hard to talk about. But it can also be all kinds of other kinds of harms, right? Like that scenario that you described is not a sexual assault scenario, but it can be deeply, deeply harmful. And in intimacies, we we often harm one another in ways that are culturally conditioned. So for me when the circle around people can say, hey, we see this happening and can do what I think of as like, first protect the person being harmed. What do you need? And give them agency because often one's agency has been reduced so profoundly, like it's underwater. And so you act to amplify the agency of the person who's been harmed. You don't just jump in and decide that you know what's best. You are as much as can be possible guided by the needs of the person harmed. And then you need to be able, while keeping that person's agency in mind, to turn to the source of the harm and say, you belong, we care about you, we're not going to throw you away, but this thing you're doing is not okay and we need it to stop. And I think that's mm -hmm. really healthy, to connect with the person and contain the behavior, but not collude, not be like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I agree that mm -hmm. that man, she's a crazy bitch or whatever, <laughs> like... You know, mm -hmm. you don't go mm -hmm. along with it. And the temptation to collude is very, very, very powerful for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. Like we might think that we need to go along with the person so they'll listen to us. And we have to agree a little with the fucked up shit they're doing so that they won't walk away. And we mm -hmm. don't think about sometimes we're not conditioned to keep our empathy with the person being harmed. So we have to redirect it continuously. Not what's the person who mm -hmm. caused harm going to feel if I say this, but what's the person who's been harmed going to feel if I don't say it? You know, keep mm -hmm. the focus totally. there. And that's hard. And at the same time, like, I feel like we need to, you know, think about our relationship with call-out culture, with, you know, with cancel culture, mm -hmm. with um, the ways that we, you know, pile on people who cause harm or just, you know, sources of harm or violence. Often, even when the people who have been harmed, you know, personally don't, are not saying, oh, let's, let's just go right, after this person. Exactly. Often, when, often when they're saying, no, I actually don't want you to, you know, be a white knight and just charge in. I don't need to and be I don't saved. Want to I just them. need to be heard. I don't want to punish them. Getting into another example, um, I was like assaulted by an uncle mm -hmm. like when I was mm -hmm. 20. And because of that, I have not made any attempt to have a relationship with him and I actually have avoided him and, you know, and like have been very successful of that. And at the same time, like just because like that situation happened and it wasn't him like intentionally wanting to harm me, but it, it still, it still ended up that way. Um, but like, he hasn't been removed, like, you know, and just sent away. Like my dad still talks to him, you know, mm. it's not about, and like my dad's been very good about like separating hit my life from my uncle's life. Mm. Um, and at the same time, like we shouldn't be dictating what relationship a survivor of violence mm -hmm. can have with their perpetrator. We should be just respecting what they want and listening yes. to them. So I don't mm. want to have a relationship with my uncle, but I'm not going to say, oh, dad, you can't talk to my uncle ever again because, mm -hmm. you know, you have an entirely different relationship with him. And don't create any situations where I have to interact with my uncle. But, you know, also don't don't just ignore my uncle because 
Right. Yeah, it's, it's complicated because I do it's think it would be okay if you yeah. felt betrayed by your father yeah. continuing to have a relationship with that person. Like, but yeah. I mean to say that it's it would be your call, and I would want to support that. Yeah, you know, totally. for your intimates to yeah. to protect you first mm-hmm. and primarily, and mm-hmm. um, and yet, so there's simultaneously this thing that for me is like we can say we can be in relationship while having a no contact boundary. So we can say. This is the standard for what our community and our, 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 whoever we are, our circle, our family, our culture sets as what is okay to do. If you have harmed somebody, we expect that you're going to make it right in a way that works for them. Find out what they need and fix it on the terms that work for them. And, and you know, not continue the harm, stop the harm. And many harms are fabric, they're ongoing. So interrupting them is almost can be about reducing them as much as stopping them. But the need to stop it is very real and valid. And so... To say, I'm open to the possibility of you transforming, but that's your call. That's your business. That's inside yourself. So here are the steps to transformation. Here are the steps to repair that would bring you up to the minimum standard that we accept in our community. When you're ready to do those things, maybe the community will consider you're being welcome. And that doesn't mean the people you harmed have to be in contact. But the neat thing is, like... The people who've been harmed don't have to be the ones doing the educating. Their focus is to protect themselves and heal. Totally. And the community around can contain that person. So the person who's been harmed can go heal mm. and doesn't have to do it because there's so much pressure to like teach mm. or whatever and you don't need to. But if everybody around mm-hmm. you can contain it, I think of it like just like this baby gate fencing that we put around, you know, like you put like a little orange fence around like a tree that you don't want people to bump into, <laughs> like, but invert that because it's the tree we don't want to get out. You do not allow harm to continue. You do not just go, oh, yeah, that's fine. We can just let that happen. You stop it. You say this isn't OK. And, you know, maybe you can't come to this space where the person you harmed has come. But we're going to be in relationship with you and say what it would look like for that shift to happen. And that person may not change. They may, for the rest of their lives, continue on the harming pattern that they've been in. And that's their business. And in some cases, that may mean a no contact boundary for the rest of your lives. But it's it can be done in a way that is, to me, still in relationship in the circle around, in the community mm. around, mm. that says, mm. these, are our ba- these are our boundaries, these are our standards. We expect you to meet them. Mm. Yeah, I want to ask about, so it's feeling clear, and I know there's a lot in the book around like thinking through transformative justice practices and setting boundaries and kind of what we're talking about right now. I think also what you both have uplifted around like having been on the receiving end of harm and needing to figure out and articulate like what you even want the process to be, um, what the requests are, right? And even even like coming to a place within yourself to be able to say, hey, this was actually harmful, right? Like there's definitely a theme in the book around like, you know, whether you'd call it dissociation or, or and there's also this chapter, like my favorite, like the, the, the sentence that knocked me out of my chair <laughs> when I was reading the book is the first sentence in the chapter called Own, Apologize, Repair. And it says, there is a variation on not all men. It is called, I feel bad when you say that. (laughs) And I'm wondering if you two can just talk a little bit about like, we feel bad, like something feels bad, something feels off, something isn't working. Like, is harm, is harm happening? What, like, like, how do we find our own orientation and our own clarity in those moments? Yeah. So something that has been really interesting and helpful for me has been thinking about when we can't even understand the harm as it's occurring. Um, So there are, I think, three distinct stages to what I understand of this work. There are serious and significant barriers at three different steps to doing work that I think of as as helping us be whole. And I want to be clear that like, this isn't, I'm one of many, 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 many people who are under trying to learn this shit because it's in our lives. I didn't make this up and I don't feel like it's mine and I don't feel like it's my special knowledge or whatever. I feel like it's, um, this is one drop in an ocean of, of knowledge and that a bulk of this work and knowledge has also been generated in communities of color and in black and indigenous and queer and trans communities who can't access the state. So I just want to like foreground that. Um, in my own life, the ways that I've understood this have been that there are barriers to even knowing harm is occurring when it's happening to you. And there are barriers to speaking it or naming it in a way that others can hear once you start to come out of the fog or fragmentation or confusion or denial or disconnection and start to name. 
many barriers that are fascinating. And then there are barriers for folks taking action to contain in a way that isn't like, now let's go beat that person up, but also isn't, now let's keep harm happening. <laughs> and each of those is a, a year's worth of learning, you know, a lifetime's worth of learning. There's no way to get into them all in a podcast, but we can touch on a couple little pieces. Um, so you asked about knowing it in the first place. And um, yeah, I mean, there's something really um, fascinating about the way the brain and the nervous system works around this because um, when the source of the harm is also either a perceived source or real source of safety, or when we must maintain a good relationship with the structure or the people or the system or the organization or the institution causing harm, our bodies and our attachment systems have a distinct way of responding to that situation. I've been recently reading, I knew this because I could feel it in my body, but I didn't know how to talk about it. And Alexandra Stein's book, terror, love, and brainwashing has been incredibly helpful because she does research into brainwashing and how it happens. And another language, another word for brainwashing is coercive persuasion, where harm is happening, but you kind of can't think about it because it's so big and you're both needing to keep on good terms with or keep close to and also run away from the source of the harm. There's an area in the brain, there's many different parts of the brain that get involved in this, but there's an area of the brain called the orbital frontal cortex that is called orbital because it's behind the eyes. And it's the highest level of your limbic brain or emotional brain and relational brain and the lowest level of your neocortex or the part of our brain that does like thinking about things, <laughs> abstract thought. And so you'll be having sensory experiences, relational experiences, emotional experiences, and you kind of, it shuts down. So you kind of can't think about them. You get foggy and you get dissociated. And in that dissociated state, that's when what she calls totalizing narratives can be offered that erase what's actually happening to you. And she is so helpful for me because she says that that can happen at the scale of like a fascist government, like a totalitarian regime, um, or it can happen where people kind of can't think about it. They have multiple tracks in their minds running simultaneously about reality. There's the state propaganda and then there's their physiological lived experience and they just never connect. Because that's the thing about dissociation is you you have multiple things running simultaneously and you just don't connect them. Fundamentally, it's about keeping apart things that most people would connect in consciousness. A healthy or a non-dissociated system would connect. And so you can be experiencing harm and know and not know that it's occurring. So it can happen at the scale of an authoritarian state. It can happen at the scale of what we typically might think of as like a cult of like 100 people or 20 people or five people or two people. And it can happen in a, a situation of harm in a, in a relationship or in a family. Um, and the operation neurologically is identical. And so what really struck me when I was doing some work around this initially, when I was unable to come into words, but trying, I had a little gathering of like six or eight people at my house, um, with most of whom were folks I'd known for like eight or 10 years. And we were going a little deeper into like some vulnerable work. And I just shared, this is what I'm learning about dissociation. And I shared a list of the symptoms and the causes. And um, one of the people who was there, who is a, like a dark skinned black man, read the list of, of symptoms and causes and said, yeah, this is just life. <laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck. Cause, and I hadn't understood, of course, I wouldn't have understood that, that like, for me, it was a situation living with, you know, experiencing gender violence and, and poverty that meant that I had to maintain a good relationship with the source of the harm. That's a situation I can exit largely. But I guess what I understood from that, what that person shared, who's like this brilliant scholar, that if you're a black person, particularly living in a white supremacist world, you always have to maintain a good relationship with the people causing the harm. There's no out. There's no outside, right? So that dissociation, he was like, well, that's just many people in my community would just think of this as like normal life. And that really struck me. And I, I think hit me as like, when systemic violence is happening, it has that same effect. It has the effect of causing us, your body copes in a number of ways. And one of the ways of coping is to just make it very hard to, to even think about what it would be like to not be having that experience and step outside it. And that's where so much of the imagination work that a lot of folks are doing has been so incredible. Wow. Yeah, that's, thank you so much. That was, that was really profound. 
Well, that's where that erasure comes in, right? Yeah. So I know that this mm-hmm. book, because it's writing from my experience, erases the experience of trans folks and non-binary folks and people in same-sex relationships. And I'm like, I don't feel like I'm the person to correct that personally, but I'm really glad to make room for that to get corrected, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to speak to some of that stuff or if... Yeah, and I was really glad to be able to step in. You know, I definitely can strongly relate to your friend who, you know, shared, oh, that's just life. Because, you know, being trans, there are so many hurdles and, you know, moments where you have to decide, oh, this is a microaggression that's happening to me. It's not intentional. It's just a facet of being, existing as trans in a world that isn't really suited for trans people. You know, it is and it isn't. We belong as does everybody. And at the same time, the societal norms and the, you know, the systems that we exist in are not really made for us. I think about, you know, bathrooms, for example, like I'm fortunate to like work in a building that has really good policies around gen- having gender inclusive bathrooms, but that is not the case. Like in most places in the world, really, we have, you know, our gender binary bathrooms where it's, they're segregated and it's man and woman and identify as gender fluid. So that's, you know, a variation on non-binary. And so I choose the bathroom that I feel safest mm-hmm. in, but at the same time, it doesn't, it still doesn't capture all of my identity. I think in all relationships, um, just picking up on something that you were saying, Serena, that power is really complicated. And what we can all do is understand some of the physiological effects of silencing when harm has occurred and know how to listen to one another when harm is occurring. Um, And even to know, culturally, we don't generally have widespread knowledge about what is happening to people when they're experiencing harm interpersonal and or systemic and the combos of those that we live in our lives, um, that there are parts of the brain that shut down neurologically when we attempt to think about or speak about trauma. And that means that when we're listening to someone who's going to speak about it, we need to slow down and listen to them much more deeply than we might think. And that when someone is speaking about trauma, they're going to have fragmentation in their ability to think about it because living with elevated cortisol in your body means that you you end up with an injured hippocampus, or you can, and your hippocampus connects neural networks together. So it becomes very difficult, and it has to do with your relationship with space and time. And so it's very difficult to even connect what's occurred. And then even if you can connect it, Broca's area, which is a language area in the brain, like turns off when people try to talk about trauma. So I've had those experiences of opening my mouth to speak and being unable to make words exit my mouth, like in a dream where you can't speak. And then people listening, if they're missing a framework with which to understand what's happened to you, will apply all kinds of other frameworks instead and will not understand what you're hearing. And the overall, they'll think, oh, what would my feelings be if I were in that situation? Or we try to empathize with and try to understand the person who's caused harm, even if we haven't done anything like what they've done and their inner experience is different from ours. So it takes listening repeatedly to build our framework to even know what the person's describing. And I think we can use that in all relationships. Mm. Well, listen, y'all, are people gonna read this book with me or not? Because it's there's so much deeper that we can go. Um, it's such a real treasure to be able to sit with you both and like feel into more complexity around these topics. And I know I was sharing earlier, like my experience in reading this book is that I sort of will enter and be like, cool, like this is about nurturance culture. I'm going to read this thing about nurturance culture. And now all of a sudden I'm getting brilliance from Serena that's like totally changing my world of how I think about gender. Or I'm like, okay, this book is about repairing harm and accountability. And so I'm going to read about that. And then I dive in and I get this whole piece on gaslighting. Like there's so much here. Um, and I want to just give folks a little bit of a preview of kind of what's in the table of contents because it is full of brilliant contributors. Um, so the book covers topics like the opposite of rape culture is nurturance culture as kind of the ground opener for the book. We've got an essay on gender from Serena. We've got building strength through movement and Afrofuturism. We have a conversation from Aravinda Ananda. Shout out to Aravinda, who's been with us at the podcast since the beginning, listening and supporting, um, writing about cultivating empathy and shame resilience. And then also talking about, you know, 
methodologies for repair and moving into action. And shout out to one of the folks who is from the U.S. that's in the book, Alex Johnson, who's from the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, too. So there's a lot of juice in here. We're also super grateful to AK Press um, for working with y'all. I know Adrienne Marie Brown and Pleasure Activism. Adrienne talks about how awesome it's been to work with AK Press, and I've heard you say similar things of like a movement publisher that really takes time and intentionality to nurture the writing that needs to come forward. Um, and so we're grateful to AK Press for working with us on Book Club. And so for folks who want to order the book, do it from akpress.org. Give your money to a movement publisher and not to Amazon, please. You can use the code podcast to get 15% off the book. And if you join Book Club to read with us, you'll get actually a 30% off discount that AK Press is giving exclusively to book club members. And so for folks who want to learn more about book club, you can go to patreon.com slash healing justice and join at the $10 a month level or above. And that will get you also a discussion guide that we'll put out next month for folks who want to gather locally and talk about the book. And Nava and all the book contributors are going to have a look at that discussion guide and help shape the questions and then we'll be on an interactive webinar together in a couple months uh, once folks have had a chance to read and discuss to be able to interact with you all and some of the other contributors as well with further questions and conversation. So very exciting. So happy that you're here for our second book club selection ever. And as a closing, would just love to hear from you too. You know, of course, we always offer a practice episode the following week um, on the podcast. And I know y'all have a practice for us to lead us into one experience of kind of some of the themes that are that we've been talking about here. And so would you give us just a little preview of what is this practice going to be about? Uh, sure, yeah. I think we're going to run it together and I'll open us into it and then Serena will take us into a writing exercise. And what I'm thinking around the way in will be a way to drop down into a part of our body that is below the nervous system. Because all this stuff about attachment is the body and the nervous system. And sometimes a lot of static and chaos can come into our bodies when we're experiencing ongoing harms. And of course, that bumps around between us. <laughs> um, and so how do we heal that? Well, we heal that by dropping down below. And then from there, we can turn shame inside out. We can turn the things that have been put inside us that were never any of ours to begin with back out because often those are the most beautiful parts of the self. So we're going to see if we can listen to that part of our body that exists before we were born and that will continue after we're gone and is part of unity, is part of this larger connected wholeness that we all come from and that we all return to. Gorgeous. Well, thank you both so much for spending time with us. And we look forward to practicing with you next week and hanging out as we read the book. Thanks, Thanks for being here. This was awesome. Thank you. Huge thank you to Nava and Serena for joining us on the podcast and sharing about their awesome new book, along with many other contributors called Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. You can get your copy at akpress.org using the discount code podcast for 15% off. But if you're part of our book club, make sure you check out the Patreon feed to get your 30% off code or join book club and get access to that code. You can find that at patreon.com slash healing justice. The next episode on the podcast is the practice that Serena and Nava offered us about a left brain and right brain exercise to help us settle and heal the nervous system. And so you can check that out as the next episode on whatever podcast platform you're listening. And hey, as long as you're listening, can you check out whatever the buttons are that say either follow or subscribe, rate and leave a review? We really appreciate the reciprocity of you taking a moment to positively review this resource. It helps more people find it and helps our labor um, be more useful as more people are able to access it. So please share the show, rate, review, and send some kindness and generosity back to us by doing that. We really appreciate it. Links 
to anything that we talked about or referenced during the show are in the show notes, which is the description of this episode on whatever platform you're listening. And a great way to stay in touch with us is to join our email list. You can do that at healingjustice.org and get a free PDF of our super cool zine sent to your email that you can print and fold and share with your friends when you join that email list. You can also find us on social media where we'll be hosting some live conversation with other contributors to this book throughout the next couple months. So make sure you follow us at Healing Justice on Instagram, at HJ Podcast on Twitter, and Healing Justice Podcast on Facebook. Thank you to Sharina Ong for editing this episode and Zach Meyer at The Coal Room for mixing and mastering. And thank you for listening with us. Your commitment to building worlds and movements that liberate and heal all of us is palpable. We're so glad you're here and we'll hear you next week.